A spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. This is the 83rd episode of Curiosityness. I am Travis DeRose, the host of the show that you're listening to, where we interview interesting people. And that's why this week we're talking to Richard Edland. So it, Richard Edland is like, he's like a Da Vinci. He does like everything. He's learned so much stuff and has been involved in so many things. But specifically, we talk a lot about his involvement in the visual special effects of Star Wars. Um, he was recruited for that to kind of work with uh, ILM on Star Wars and uh, he's just an incredible guy with a bunch of cool stories and things he's done. Like he invented a, he worked on making a um, guitar amp, a small guitar amp, and he was in the Navy. He's just got a really fun story. I can't even articulate it right now because it's too much. And we kind of just barely scratched the surface, but it's a really interesting conversation. Richard's a really cool guy, and uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this. So let's get to the episode. Here is Richard Edland. Real quick, one more thing. We're doing a giveaway. It's this cool 3D Star Wars R2-D2 LED light type of thing. I saw it and almost bought it for myself, so figured it'd be a good giveaway thing. Uh, it's pretty cool. Go to curiositynest.com slash giveaway, and you can win this thing. So curiositynest.com slash giveaway. Okay, done. On to the episode. All right. Boom, we're going. What's up, Richard? Huh? How you doing? I'm doing great. Slight. I'm ready. I'm ready. You're ready for this, okay? I'm ready to tell all. <laughs> Let's dive into this because I'm not sure if I'm ready. Because man, you, I mean, I start off. I, I learn about Richard Edland, you know, working on Star Wars and stuff, and then you dive a little deeper, and this guy's inventing guitar amps and all this kind of stuff. You're like a, a Da Vinci. Yeah, my pig nose era, yeah. Yeah. I was, a, I was a rock and roll photographer for a few years. Yeah. Dude, just like a crazy, like such a fun background. So let's, can we dive into it? Yeah, sure. Go. Okay. So, I mean, how do we start? In high school with photography? I had a teacher. Actually, it's funny because I'm a generalist. And I, I mean, I, when I was in the Navy, I went to a prep school in, Norman, Oklahoma, and, and in six weeks we had to go from poly polynomials to calculus, learn all the uh, naval supply system, mm -hmm. learn all the the, the uh, physical laws, and and it was just it was just like a it was like a funnel of knowledge. It happened in six weeks. It was amazing. Okay, and so I, uh, but I don't have a classical. But like, I mean, uh, engineering background or anything like that. I've just read a lot and experimental. Right. And, and I learned early on that you, uh, you hire people that are smarter than you are. Mm -hmm. Cool. In other words, I could work a calculus problem at one point, but I can't anymore. But I know who can. I, I can hire them. Okay. So to speak. And yeah. So uh, when I was in high school, I had a phot photographic uh, teacher who was like a super nerd. I mean, he was basically, he taught, he taught physics and he taught photography. So he taught the physics of photography. Ah, okay. And so I learned optics and, and we had to mix our own developers and know all what all the chemicals were that went into the developers. 
Mm. And I already I have a I have a knack for composition, so I just kind of fell into photography and and and, loved it. and, uh, and I was shooting high school sports and publishing in the LA Examiner. Uh, there was a there was a uh, Scholastic Sports Association. Anyway. Um, Wesley Walker, my, my physics photography teacher, stood me in good stead through my career. Okay. Also, when I was in the seventh and eighth grade in Minneapolis, they had, I mean, I took, aside from the regular classes, I, I, I mean, physics and English and, and math and all that, I mm-hmm. took um, electric shop, print shop, um, and um, engineering drawing. Jeez. And that's, that's, that was my background in engineering drawing. It was my eighth grade class. <laughs> so, so anyway, you know, I, I picked up as I went along. And, yeah. And I've, I've often been in the right place at the right time with the right chops. Right on. Yeah, you are a Da Vinci man. You, Richard, you're like, you learn a little bit of everything. I like that. Yeah, and so basically, I can speak the language of optics, and I I, I designed ten lenses with David Grafton, who was who was the chief lens designer for Xerox. Jeez, and, and so I was able to pitch ideas to him, and then he was able to make them happen. Right, and they you so, know I mean, enough where they can be like this guy, he knows what he's talking about here, so we can kind of trust him and stuff like that. Yeah. Man, I love it. So, I mean, so photography is like, it was like, it was a natural thing for me because like I said, I, I love art and I love composition and uh, photography as an art. But, it, you, but in order to really get anywhere with photography, you have to understand the process. Right. So I, I, I learned the process and I read the Mies book and, you know, and, and, Discovered, you know, and, and took my high school chemistry knowledge to hiring the right people to run a, a photo lab. Yeah, we, we had to develop our own film, uh, you know, to, to very exacting specifications okay. in order to be successful in getting rid of the cursed mat line. The, oh, the mat line, yes, because that's about that's like talking about into. Uh into Star Wars and with the snow scene and everything, right? Well, back up to Star Wars. I mean, when George was shooting Star Wars and, and getting his dailies back, because I, I demanded that he shoot blue screen. Okay. You know, and, and, and so he, he, we went over there and set him up shooting blue screen, but he went to dailies every day, shuddering at the thought of these, of seeing these crappy blue screenshots that he, that, that you can't miss when they're mm-hmm. when they're when they don't work, and he was afraid that that was going to happen to him, and so he went through Star Wars with this kind of paranoia, but we we came through for him, and, it, and actually on Star Wars it wasn't so difficult because we're holding up spaceships against stars, mm-hmm. and even though there's blurs and there are backgrounds where we had to have motion blur and all that kind of stuff to make it work. Right. We couldn't be stop motion. In other words, we couldn't shoot a frame, stop it, 
move a frame, move the image. I mean, move the object, shoot a frame, move the object. That that didn't work. The camera had to be moving, and the model had to be moving during the shot in order to simulate reality. Right. And if it doesn't have motion blur and it shudders, then it looks like a Harryhausen stop-motion move. I mean, I bless his heart. You know, but I mean, when those birds fly and, then, and the wings are, you know, stuttering, you know, right. that, 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 was a, that couldn't happen. Okay. With, with the kind of dynamics that George wanted for the movie. I see. And so we created a, a photographic system that would enable us to shoot models and, and make them look as though they were shot with a normal 35 millimeter movie camera at 24 frames a second. Right. And it had all the artifacts of shooting a movie at 24 frames a second because each, each frame <clears throat> each frame is a 50th of a second. So when, you, when your hand moves across the frame at a 50th of a second, it becomes a blur. And, and the thing is that as an audience, we've, we've come to accept these anomalies of image that, that and because we've been to the theater and seen a thousand movies. Okay. And the 10 year old is going to, is going to say, Hey, that looks funny. If mm-hmm. it doesn't work, you know, and you're going to lose him. Right. So he's, he's in some ways your most, your most dire critic. Yeah. Right. They're, they're brutally honest, huh? Yeah. Right. Hey, <laughs> That's great looking. That sucks, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. They'll tell you right to your face too. Yeah, right. <laughs> so we had to conquer those. Those we had to climb those mountains. Yeah. Man, oh man. So, so George wasn't George Lucas wasn't into the blue screen at first. You had to kind of sell him on that idea. Yeah. Not only that, but he didn't. He wanted to shoot it in one eight five. And we're thinking, George, this is a space opera. You can't shoot this in one eight five. You know, it has to be widescreen. We shoot in Panavision, you know, two, two, right. two, five, one. You know? Okay, I see. And uh, and so he kind of grumblingly went along with that. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, he shot he shot uh, more American graffiti in technoscope, which is a widescreen format, but it's only two per thirty five, so it's kind of low quality. Okay. You know, but we were shooting. We wanted to shoot using VistaVision, which is a double frame format, so that when we when we would shoot the models with spherical lenses, and uh, and then when we, when we composited them, we composited them in, in reduction, so we reduced in composite, and by doing that, we saved the, the image quality, and so our material looked and it cut with normal material that was shot with the regular Panaflex. Okay. So, so we, we shot with a larger format. All of the images that we shot were double frame format. Mm-hmm. Was going through the camera sideways and pulling eight perfs at a time instead of going to vertically pulling four perfs. So it's double the image. And, and so that, that, uh, that advantage be used and and it also gave us the advantage of being able to make shoot the camera upside down so the film is going through the camera this way and so the camera is the, the lens could be only this far from the bottom of the camera oh wow so we could get very close to the models 
Right, I see. And we were cheating the mod. I mean, the models that we had were just ridiculously small. I mean, the X-wing was like it was like sixteen inches long or something like that. Right. Yeah. And the, the Millennium Falcon, which was very unwieldy and difficult to shoot, it was like about three and a half feet in diameter. And we did time. But it was like, and the thing is, it was very difficult to shoot that because in those days, we, we weren't on a, a computer monitor moving stuff around. Everything was, was physical. And, and so basically, it had a two-inch pipe that was mounted in a, in a neon pylon in other words, there was a pylon that that, 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 the, that the mounting rod came out of. The mm-hmm. model was attached to, and the, the pylon had neon tubes inside of it, and and it was it was translucent blue. Oh, so so we had a blue pylon, so that so that we could we could get a mat from right. the pylon, and otherwise we'd have to rotoscope it. And we did a lot of rotoring as well. Yeah. But, but that cut down the amount of work because we had to do a hell of a lot of shots. <laughs> 365 shots. Each shot made up of several elements. You know, mm-hmm. some of the shots had like a dozen elements. And then each one of those elements had to have four or five pieces of film to get to the mat. I mean, it's a very complex project. and, and, and and uh, I don't think there was anybody but us that could have done that at that time. And, really? And the thing, yeah. I mean, the thing is that there, you know, Trumbull had another crew going across the town, and and his 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 style of effects didn't he didn't use any blue screen. He didn't use any matting. You know, he, he used front light, back light if he had to do a matte. Uh-huh. But all of these shots were like slow and ponderous, whereas our shots were dynamic and zippy. And so the motion blur was crucial to 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 making them look good and and, and fooling the ten year old into thinking that that thing is actually huge and it's yeah. flying very fast. Man, okay. So can you try to walk? Can you like? I find it so interesting the. With you know, with the model like moving, but then the camera is also moving to kind of create more movement, right? Well, that was in, that would be natural. That would be the natural way. If some guy was was actually shooting this with an airy, and he's like, "Oh, here he comes," and he and he pans by, and it's a swish plant. I mean, that the artifacts that would be involved in him shooting this with a normal, uh, you know, a twenty-five foot wide model or I mean yeah. an actual actual ship flying by um well would would have all that blur. But the thing is also keep in mind that 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 in order to make this stuff work filmically, we cheated the speed. So rather than these things traveling at light speed or like a jet, mm-hmm. they were traveling like World War One biplanes. They were very slow, really, but they were. But the dynamics were good because they they they, they came right by the camera. Oh, I see. Okay. So, in other words, we're cheating. We're cheating the the reality of how fast it would actually be going. Yeah. In order to make it look cool. Right. Man, oh man. So, so it's all. A, 
So that's the art of doing visual effects is you have to, you have to, you have to stretch reality to make the audience comfortable. Yeah. So how do you figure this stuff out? Is it just you're doing small tests and kind of seeing what works and then just kind of gradually falling into, you know, a system or something? Well, I knew what kind of system we had to have. And, okay. and, and I, you know, I, I worked with Don Trumbull. Don, Don Trumbull was Doug's father. And he's a wonderful guy. I mean, really smart. And he was an engineer and, and, and a real fast worker. And I would say, look, Don, the, the camera's got a, it's got a pan and tilt on the nodal point of the lens because otherwise it's going to sweep across something as, instead of panning across. Mm, so okay. the camera is behind the lens, and the camera's huge in relation to, because it's, 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 it's mimicking a miniature camera. Yeah. And so it's, it's panning and tilting around the lens. <clears throat> and, uh, and so if that, would, if that wouldn't happen, the shots wouldn't have worked. So the, basically, we came up with this Trojan helmet style head, which, which gave you like a 30, 30 degrees up and up to 90 degrees down. So you could shoot straight down or you could shoot 30 degrees up or oh, thereabouts. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the camera, then the whole rigmarole panned across on the top, also panning on the, on the nodal point. And the camera also rolled. So you could pan, tilt, and rotate camera on on the nodal point of the lens, and and by you by having all that flexibility, the mechanical flexibility, I I, I knew that I could I could put together the kind of shots that George would want. Mm-hmm. So are, when he does, George come to you and tell you like what he wants, and you just have to figure it out, or is there like compromises that are being made between what's well, going to look good and. Interestingly, George decided that what he would do is he would put together a test reel and he'd get shots from the Battle of Britain and, you know, a bunch of 50s movies, uh-huh. you know, that had dogfight sequences in them, right. like P-38s and, and B-57s and, and uh, uh, what do you call them, the Spitfires, the British airplanes. And basically, those uh, you know, the the the, the B twenty six was a was the Millennium Falcon, and and so basically, Marsha cut this reel together. His wife, Marsha's mm-hmm. a great editor. Okay. And so they basically met at USC, and and this whole creative bunch that came out of USC with you know it's like George and Gary Kurtz and and Howard Kazanjian and Caleb Deschanel and. John Milius, all these guys came out of USC. Coppola went to UCLA, but he was hanging around with the guys at USC. Right, yeah. And in those days, I mean, I had an Austin Healy, like a little nice. red Austin Healy, and yeah. I'd park, on the, I'd park on, the, on the lawn in front of the cinema. You know, I mean, it was very loose in those days, and the cinema department then was like, it was like a donut. I mean, it was like the buildings were around a court, central courtyard. There was mm-hmm. a courtyard in the center, and then there was a screening room over on the right, and then the classrooms, you know, were... And it also had a basement, 
So there were there's, there were classes that were held down under underneath. So it was a very interesting and compact uh, school, and it was the best film school in in the world. I mean, yeah. it was like, and the thing is that uh, to to get through USC, uh, you had to take camera, you had to take editing, you had to take production design, you had to, you know, you had to learn about casting, you had to learn all these aspects. Oh, okay. And so when you came out of USC, you may specialize, you may decide that you want to be an editor, but you also worked on a, on, a, on a project where you had to edit, you had to work with someone who wanted to be a director mm-hmm. and someone who wanted to be a cinematographer. Yeah. But the thing is, all these people had a well-rounded education about filmmaking. Okay, I see. Because you went to USC. Uh, well, I guess let's jump back. Because you went to, you did photography, and then you went to the Navy, correct? I, yeah, I basically, when I got out of high school, I went to high school in Montevallo, which is like, it's like a suburb of L.A. Yeah. My dad was in the truck body business. And I actually worked, while I was going to college, I worked in, in the, in the uh, California Living Bodies. I started out by repairing all the on the all the tools in the shop, and uh, I, when I finished doing all that, which meant I was also working on welders without turning the power off. So I had four forty three phase power, you know, and just didn't step in a puddle of water, you know, because uh, <laughs> you had to be careful. Yeah, I'm sure. And and basically, I worked my way into the refrigeration department and then I wound up designing a refrigeration unit. And then I then got a then I got into and this all happened in two years. Wow. And I wound up in in the uh, design department working with the president of the company. And there was one other engineer that, that was was there and he was not even full time. But anyhow uh, I worked with Chuck Rodinson, and we used to get in these ferocious arguments about how to do, do things. And and we actually enjoyed doing that. And and, and, and the thing is, I, I I learned creative argument through dealing with Chuck. Uh-huh. And, and the thing is, I learned that if somebody doesn't argue with you because they disagree with how you want to do something, and they might have a better idea, then you're losing the, you're losing that opportunity. Right. So, I mean, so to get to have people to work with you who who are willing to to exchange ideas, even when it comes to almost a fisticuffs, mm-hmm. you know, because someone says, "No, I want to do it this way," and, you know, and you have that. So right. But anyway, uh, that was part of learning how to build a team. Yeah. And. Uh, and so let me see. So, so I left. So, so I went uh, when I finished. When I got drug, graduated from high school, I I had a I had a, a uh, scholarship to go to Pepperdine. Oh, but it was it was a, it was a writing scholarship, journalism scholarship. Really? Okay. Now, although I, I had to write, I had when I shot sporting events, I had to also write the lead story for the event that I carried. So I had writing capability, but I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to be more like, I, I thought I might want to be a photojournalist. Mm-hmm. 
So I basically decided that I was going to join the Navy. I went out on a day in the Navy cruise on a destroyer. There was two destroyers and a, and a cruiser, and there was a submarine, and there were jets flying over, and there was a B-25 dragging along. Uh, target that the can't that the guns on the ship were shooting at. Yeah. And when you hit it, you could see it hit. You know, they they fired the twin fifties, fifty caliber machine guns. And we had a five we had a five inch uh, gun on on the that was the biggest gun was a five inch. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was actually straddling that when they fired it. <laughs> and it's like it felt like I got kicked in the balls. It was it was like wow. And the thing is, a lot. Of, I never got seasick. There was a whole bunch of guys who were hanging over the, hanging over the deck, puking under the water. They couldn't take the, uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't really rough sea either. Yeah. But anyway, so I decided, this is great. I'm going to join the Navy. So that was all just a day so, to kind of show it off to you. You just visited for was, one day. It was a day in the Navy, and it was like the Navy put it on to to to. to to attract them, yeah. To attract guys like me to, to join the Navy, which I okay. did. Right. And so my pal and I, we both joined the Navy, and and uh, and, and I joined under this. Uh, it was called the High School Airman Recruit Program. So I was an Airedale, but I was not a not a seaman. Mm-hmm. So I was in the Air Navy, and uh, and they and they and because I had a high school diploma, they had to. They had to guarantee the rate that I wanted to go to. In other words, I couldn't get to boot camp and they say, okay, you're going to be a boss's mate or you're going to be a machinist or you're going to be a, you know, a a yeoman, you know, work in the office or whatever, you know. So basically, I chose photography. Wow. That's great. When I got out of uh, boot camp, I went to that, that, I mentioned this, the, uh, the preparatory school in, in Oklahoma. There was a Navy mm. base in you know, Norman, which is this, you know, we're like 10 miles from the University of Oklahoma. And, uh, and so anyway, then, uh, so I went from boot camp to Norman, Oklahoma. And I was in boot, I was in, I was on working details for about, Two months or something like that until my class started. And then I was in my class for six weeks, and then I, then I was there for another week or two before uh, before I got sent out and before I got my orders. Mm-hmm. And so basically, after uh, let's see, I think I got I got to boot camp on. April, no, I got to photo school on April 1st, on April Fool's Day. And, and, I, uh, and I left there in, in October, so it's late September, early October. And the thing is that when I left Norman, I asked his first class, I said, look, I don't want to really travel. It's like, it's like, it's kind of hot, you know. Can I wear my dress whites, you know, so white uniform with a, with a kerchief? Right. Yeah. He said, "Oh yeah, no problem." You know. So I did, and all these other guys are sweating away in their dress blues. You know, you, you know, you're dressed for the for a, for a, a uh, you know a snowstorm. Yeah. Blizzard. You know, you can go out in a blizzard and dress blues. But anyway, 
when I got to Norman, when I got to uh, Pensacola, Florida, that's where the, the school was. Mm-hmm. Um, the officer of the day, I came in in my dress whites, and the officer said, Officer Day looks at me and says, If it wasn't April Fool's Day, I'd put you on report for traveling out of uniform. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. So, so anyway, I, uh, I graduated, at the, I was, I was already a pretty hit photographer when I got to photo school, so I was, I was toning it in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and actually, based, uh, interesting how things happen in your life. One Sunday, I'm taking it easy, I go to the swimming pool, which is like a block away from the barracks, and I promptly fall asleep. On my on my stomach, mm-hmm. and I wake up about three hours later, and I've got this terrible sunburn. Jeez, and I mean, it's like it's like to the point where it took me a, t- a little bit of time to stand up because I I faint. Oh I mean, man! Oh man! So I went to the went to the infirmary, and I and I said, I said this terrible sunburn. I said, can you help me on this? And he says, Oh yeah, I can give you something for that. He says, But I'll have to put you on report. Because I'm, you're not allowed to get sunburned if you're, you're Navy property. What? Yeah. I mean, if you get sunburned in the Navy, you can, they throw you in the brig. <laughs> Jeez. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, it's like, you, you know, you basically, you, you don't have, um, you don't have, you gave up freedom, right? You damaged their property. Yeah, you're damaged property. Jeez, oh well, basically, okay. I'm here. I am in photo school, and, and I'm, I'm, this is about a third of the way through the class. And the warrant officer, who was in charge of the school, took pity on me because I was like a top student, yeah. and he let me sit in his office and kind of re- re- recover for about a week. Okay. And while I was in, while I was doing that, I mean, he had all these advanced photo books, and I could read up my Ansel Adams, these great uh, photographic books and technical books and things like that. Yeah, and I became friends with him, you know, because we talk, and you know, and and so we became friends. And and uh, and about, uh, I guess it was about two months later. We finished the class, finished the school, and I was like on the top of the class. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, I had put in for carrier duty. I mean, they'd say, okay, well, what would you like? What would, what would your preference be? And I said, I thought to myself, well, I don't want to get stationed in Corpus Christi for two years. You know, and so I, I put in for a carrier. And these guys are saying, you're out of your mind. You don't care. It's like, it's like you're in prison. I said, "Well, God, you're traveling around. I mean, you may go to the Philippines or you know, yeah. South Pacific." And uh, and so I put it in for carrier duty, and I didn't know what the what the what the uh, orders were. But when the orders came, you're going to be stationed at Atsugi, Japan, for two years in the Fleet Air Photo Lab, which is like the finest photo lab in the Navy. Right. Have every kind of photographic equipment known to man there. Mm-hmm. So I, so that was like the plum, and I'm sure Conger got that. From oh, okay, nice. And so I mean, so so 
the bottom, I mean, long story short, getting a suntan or sunburn is what changed my life. Yeah, weird how stuff like that happens, huh? Yeah. So I wound up getting stationed in Japan for two years, which was fantastic. I mean, it was like 360 yen to the dollar. Uh, the normal Japanese journeyman carpenter would make 500 yen in a day. It's about a oh. buck 40. Man, oh man. So this was in 1960, 1959, 1960. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I could go to Tokyo, stay at the Imperial Hotel for, for under $5 a night. Jeez. You know, and, and the cabs were like a, like a quarter. Yeah. You know, it cost you maybe a dollar to go all, all around Tokyo. <laughs> my friend and I hired some rickshaw guy and he gave us a tour of, of uh, you know fairly good tour of downtown Tokyo right but anyhow then I, I discovered that uh, a Mitchell movie camera in the in the, in the, uh, in the hot locker and uh, thought hmm because I was kind of interested in, in, in movies because I'd been shooting with like a bit with a filmo, like a little sixty millimeter camera shooting aircraft landings that that may something may happen, we would get we would get a a, a, a crash call. And we'd mm-hmm. grab a camera, some guy grab a still camera, another guy grab a, a, a sequence camera, and then I would grab a movie camera. We'd jump in the pickup truck, drive over we're about about two blocks from the runway. And, and we'd be posted next to the runway shooting the, you know, planes. So anyway, I'd been shooting movies that way. I discovered a processing machine outside under a tarp. And I brought that in and rebuilt it. And it was a, it was a reversal process. So basically, you would shoot reversal. And, and it would come out right. So you didn't have to shoot a negative and make a print. Oh, okay. So, so I, I rebuilt the processor and I started shooting movies. I shot it. I did a training film for how to change over from Japanese power to generators. Uh-huh. And it, um, I, the stories go on. <laughs> I, 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 suffice it to say that I was shooting low angles with a wide angle lens and this Japanese guy's running around throwing switches and starting a generator and doing all these this bigger, this bigger, bigger role. And, uh, and so anyway, that, that was a, tra- it was a training film and I had, I had subtitles that I shot. So you do something and then the next thing was like, okay, throw a switch under such and such and then run to generator number three and start it. Right. You know, while it's warming up, you, you go back and you turn, you know, cause number one is already warm enough. So, you know, it was that kind of thing. So, how, would, how did you put those subtitles on back then? Just shoot them. I basically had a, I'd have a list of, of material, and I, had a, I, had, I would shoot a, a partial exposure, kind of gray exposure of the sheet. And then I had like a, a, like a, like a mat that would, that would be underneath the, the, the step that I was dealing with. So, okay. so that you could you could remember what the last step was and see kind of what the next step while you're 
giving the instructions to do the step the one that's lit. Wow, interesting. Because we didn't have any sound equipment. So I mean, so I had this book called A Grammar of the Film by Raymond Spottiswood. as this intellectual treatise on the silent film up until 1928. You know, it was published in 1928. That was my Bible. Oh, okay. But I learned how to make, I learned how to, to tell stories with, uh, without, without dialogue. Yeah. That was one thing I heard you talk about on, I saw an interview you did where you talked about how when you're making all these sequences and, you know, even for Star Wars and stuff, you would, you would make these effects scenes, but there would be no sound at all. Yeah, right. In other words, yeah, exactly. Because it's, you know, the only sound is, hey, that, that there's a mat line there. We need to, we need to adjust that. Or, or, yeah. You know, we have to, we have to, uh, you know, underdevelop the, the mat to get it a little bit smaller, you know. And, and, uh, you know, so we would, that would be the kind of sound that we would, we would hear. <laughs> so, so, I, I went to, so I wanted to see Star Wars finished. Yeah. And that, and and my shot of the of the Star Destroyer coming over camera, and Johnny Williams' music and Ben Burtt's lasers, yeah, all this, the movie came alive. You know, sound brings Holy the movie shit. alive. Yeah, I can imagine that. John, John Williams. Huh? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there were there were four <clears throat> tipping points in Star Wars. Oh, the the main one initially was Ralph McQuarrie. Mm-hmm. Ralph McQuarrie was a, was a was a graphic. He was, a, he was an illustrator that was working for Boeing and and uh, big aircraft corporations, like painting airplanes and and scenes. Oh, and and somehow George ran into him, but he was a very creative guy, and and basically they talked about this and they talked about that. And Ralph came up with like a series of about 20 paintings that art directed Star Wars. Really? I mean, mean, yeah. I mean, the costumes, the look of the costumes, the the robots, you know, John Barry came to visit us one time, who was the production designer who basically died one during production. Man. He had some kind of an aneurysm in his in his brain. Jeez. And and one day he said, you know, I feel terrible. I gotta, I I can't. I have to go home. He went home and died that night. Man. And so all of a sudden, Norman Reynolds had to pick up the pick up the uh, baton. And right. Norman was a fantastic production. Wow. So Norman wound up being the production designer on. Finishing up on Star Wars and and Empire and Jedi Raiders, and I I wound up working with him again on Alien Three. Oh, okay. So I did, I did five movies in in England, mm-hmm. and they had was there was no visual effects <clears throat> tech. I mean, the visual effects business was Roy Fields had a had a like two optical printers and a couple of down shooters, animation parent cameras, and maybe a Houston fearless processor or something, a very, very rudimentary system. Mm-hmm. That was it. And that was a Pinewood. 
I mean, Stanley put the whole thing together, and, and that's a whole other discussion, how 2001 was. Because there were no composites in 2000. They were all negative. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's very, very ingenious how it was done. So, But the thing, again, is that that was a movie where the shots are very slow and, you know, the Blue Danube. Da, 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 yeah. Da, da, you know. And and so, but anyway, so where was I? Yeah, yeah well, so you I'm, give it. So here, you're giving me the four. Oh yeah, four the four. Points. So Ralph is one. We, the visual effects team, were the only ones that could have done this yeah. at the time. At the time, and um, John Williams, mm. so yeah, and Alec Guinness playing uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi was crucial, crucial to us. Okay. Because, because he basically transcended the demographic. I was worried that Star Wars was going to be a teenage movie when I first read the script because it had lines like, trust in the Force, Luke. You know, and it's like, who's going to make that play? Brando? You know? Oh, you know, you need see. to have some actor with real gravitas that's going to do that. Okay. And I couldn't think of many American actors that could have pulled that off. And, okay. And Alec Guinness was perfect. And the thing, and the thing is that the, the Fox had made some kind of a deal with the, with the British government to get, a, to get a kickback on using the British film industry to shoot Star Wars. George hated that idea. I can't believe it. I mean, it was so lucky to, to, all the, to, to, to throw him in the middle of the British film industry, which had this incredible capability. Uh-huh. I mean, the, the, the plasters, the, you know, the costume design. I mean, you know, the people that, you know, the British film industry was fantastic. And, and that was such a, 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 such a fortunate turn of events for George, even though he kind of, they had to drag him kicking and screaming over them. Yeah, why was he? Why did he hate that? I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I think he likes to be close to home. Okay. Something. I don't know, but I mean, the thing is also that George is a diabetic. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and and so basically, it was very difficult for him to do the to do that, I and mean, he had to keep his blood sugar blood sugar blood sugar up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, they bring egg McMuffins in and heat them up. You know, really? Okay. Every couple hours. So, and the thing is that the British crew didn't think much of Star Wars. I mean, they thought it was kind of hanky panky, you know. You're right. And and the thing is that that um, oh, and then then Gil Taylor, who's the DP. Very talented guy, but the problem with Gil was that he liked to, he liked the three martini lunches, and so if you wanted to get something shot, you better do it in the morning. Right? Yeah. <laughs> after lunch, it was like, you know, a little hazy, huh? So I mean, he had those. He had all these problems, and and and, uh, and then Dykstra was on the phone with him and with Gary and and. and the thing about Dykstra, very talented guy, but he, he basically, if he had an idea, he wanted to do a certain way, 
either you're going to be smart enough to outwit him, which is not easy, uh-huh. or he's going to fight you all day to keep it his way. And he and he used to keep Gary on the phone for like an hour and a half, and Gary's trying to produce this movie. Damn, you know. So there's all these politics that are going on behind the, you know, that have nothing to do with making the shot. Right. So what what was kind of like the the vibe? Was it kind of like a collaborative spirit, or was it was there kind of a bunch of egos going on working on on the effect shots? Well, when I came over there, I came over there about maybe about halfway through the shoot. And, and one of the schedules was all the all the stuff, the blue screen stuff of the guys during the trench run. Okay, right. There was a 50 foot, 50 by 50 foot huge blue screen. Mm-hmm. And there were like, there were like, 50, 40, 40, 40, amp, or no, 140 amp blue flame arcs lighting this blue screen to get a 6.3. I had, I, I said, you got to give me a 6.3, Gil Taylor, right? And that was like, oh, a 6.3, man. This is an ASA 100, 100. We had, we had 5247, the film stock. There was only one available. At the time, one film stock built that was fifty two forty seven, mm-hmm. and it was only an ASC hundred. So that meant that we had—I think we had to have about two thousand, at least two thousand foot candles on the screen in order to get enough brightness to get a six three stop. Damn! And on top of that, they had the heat wick. There was the biggest heat wave that in history in London. Oh, it was 106 degrees in London, and we got all these arc lights. I mean, it was brutal. Man. <clears throat> anyway, so a uh, couple of stories. And uh, so anyway, it's, it was like Ralph McQuarrie, the visual effects crew, uh, Let's say Obi Wan Kenobi, and then finally um, John Williams. Yeah. So let's jump back because, like, what were you doing before Star? Like, how did you get roped into Star Wars? How did like? Why do you say that you guys were kind of the only ones who could do that then? Because we knew of each other. Basically, here was the deal. I was at Bob Abel. Bob Abel was had a had a. I, I after I after, after the one year I spent in the Pignos project, yeah. I wanted to get be behind the camera again. Mm-hmm. And so I heard about this guy, Bob Abel, that, that was doing, you know, fancy TV commercials. And he had, he had Con Pedersen work. Con Pedersen was the unsung hero of 2001, who basically doesn't get the credit that, that Trumbull hastens to take. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, a lot of those ideas that, that, were, that, were, that made it work, uh, made 2001 work, came from Khan. And Khan was, was a very self-deprecating self, uh, guy who wanted to, you know, just lock me in a back room and let me do my work and shut up. I don't want to be interviewed. You know, get, go talk to him. You know, yeah. I'm busy. I mean, that was Khan. 
and, and I mean, he's a brilliant guy. He used to do, he used to write crossword puzzles for the New York Times. Jeez. You know, he's a smart guy. Wow. Anyway, on a side note, I used to work with Harold Ramis, you know, and Harold, uh, I did uh, Ghostbusters with him, and then later he did Multiplicity, and then I did Dazzle. And, and Harold could, he could do the Friday crossword because the New York Times crossword puzzle gets progressively difficult as, you, as the week goes on. By the time, Monday's pretty easy. Tuesday, a little harder. Friday's pretty damn hard. And, and then, there, then there's the Sunday uh, ones. Big. And I got hooked on them. But anyway, Harold, Harold would do the, he would do the Friday crossword puzzle in about half an hour or less. Man. But anyway, I mean, it was more, more like about 15 minutes. I mean, he was really smart. But anyway, uh, so, so here's, here's, here I am at Abel's and, and I, I developed the, this with Richard Taylor, my pal. We developed the candy apple neon look, which is what Bob, Bob Abel called it. It was animated graphics. Mm-hmm. And we did this famous commercial in 1974. Uh, the Butterfly Girl for 7-Up. And it was like all these elements. It was like, it was like, it was like an acid trip. And, and both of us had that experience. <laughs> so we, so we, we, uh, we cashed in on it. But anyway, and Abel got the Cleos. But anyway, so we did the Butterfly Girl, and then we did the Uncola commercial. And then meanwhile, Khan, and then the, the Uncola campaign. And then Khan was working with Dave Stewart on shooting the circle slit, which was like kind of an offshoot of the, of the slit scan that was done in 2001. So he had this long track. It was like about a 30-foot track or more, 50, maybe 40-foot track, something like that. Anyway, he... Dave was in the, in the, and it took like days, it took like four or five days to make a shot. Because yeah. it was like each frame took like 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then it, the camera had to move back to, and then the things would move a little bit. So, uh, so I had to build another camera. And I, so I built a, I got a 14 foot track and I built a horizontal animation camera with a, with a, uh, the follow focus system based on a cam that we had to we had to discover the the, set, the, the cam and then the camera had to be positioned at a certain place on the track and there was there was a uh, oh god it was like a a, a a high high resolution potentiometer on the on the track that would be that would be feeding data electronic data to the High resolution potentiometer on, on the follow focus system, so that the camera could do follow focus for fourteen feet, and I could do I could do repeating passes. Oh. And some of the shots were like, I mean, the artwork was very complicated, and it was like uh, it was like photo. It was litho. Uh, the, the cells were litho lithographs usually, and and, and 
we'd have to change filters. I had spinning mesh to give it like a hot dog effect around the, the line. I mean, it was, it was, you'd have to see it. I mean, and these shots, I mean, it would take me all day, like 10 hour day to shoot 30 frames. Man. And it was like, you'd go into the, into this century dip, deprivation chain. It's like a big black room with, with a light box that's all taped off so it doesn't leak the light anymore. And, uh, and so anyway, we were doing these complicated commercials, and it was, and it was motion control controlled by punch tape. And the punch tape was, com- was, was, com- was, uh, was programmed on a, on a teletype machine that you could buy surplus. So we bought a surplus teletype machine. The con would then write the program and then give us a punch tape, which would then be read by, by Sal. What was it? Hal and Sal. Or I forgot the name of it. It had, it had a, uh, an alliteration with uh, the, the uh, Hal in, in 2001. But anyway, oh. so, so we were working on early motion control and, and fancy artwork. And, uh, and I'd been a, you know, I had a real solid photographic background by that time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so basically I knew John, I, I knew John had worked on a down and found the strain and a couple of other, I think he worked on, was that, I always forget the name of the John. The spaceship that has the, the, the forest inside. Mm, I don't know. Silent Running. Oh, okay. So anyway, he was working with Doug on Silent Running. And again, it was all repeat pass type stuff using, uh, you know, wire, you know, using wire recorder or something like that to, to record the the, the action, action, play it back. We're doing a stop, stop motion frame at a time. Right. Yeah. But anyway, I knew that he was like another gyro gearless that was played. You know, that was like experiment. Says we were all into experimental photography. Yeah. And we knew about each other because we'd seen. They saw what we were shooting at Abel's, and we saw stuff they did. So, so. Um, so anyway, um, one day I'm at Abel's and uh, I get a call from Dykstra. He said, you know, Richard, uh, I've heard about you. I'd like to talk to you about uh, possibly shooting some miniatures for this movie that I'm in a box. It's like a feature called Star Wars. And, and I said, I'll be right there. I jumped in my car, drove out to the valley, and John was there with Gary Kurtz was there at the time. And so I met with these guys and about 25 minutes later I had the job. Really? And so basically that's how and I was and, and like at that time Joe Johnson was there, Steve Gawley was there. I'm trying to think. Dick Dick Alexander was the machinist who I was working with at Abel's. 
And uh, there's only like four or five of us at that time that had been brought on. Wow. And, and uh, so when you got that offer, was it just like you just thought? Yeah, I mean, you know, we started talking about how we would do it. Oh, and yeah. we, we, we understood that, that, that this concept of motion blur and how stop motion, because I'd been shooting, I shot that stuff. I, I was working for Joe Westheimer when I got out of the tape. Mm-hmm. And, and Joe had, I mean, this was the first job I got in Hollywood. Basically, uh, <clears throat> we did titles, opticals, and inserts, basically, and some special effects mm-hmm. for TV commercials or sometimes features and uh, so I was in, into, into visual effects and I was a lettering artist you know so I was doing hand lettering main times in fact I designed the alphabet for Star Trek oh that that's right that kind of angular yeah I designed the whole alphabet that's so iconic that's crazy and, and I got I got nothing extra for that that was <laughs> Days work, but anyway, they still use it. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah I mean that's still that's that's been the spell. But anyway, um, so I did hand lettering. I, I, I hand lettered the titles. I supervised the, the hand setting of all the the hot hot the hot press type, where we do white letters on black cards, and I would then. Clean that up and shoot it. Position everything. And shoot it. Mm-hmm. And uh, shoot. They shoot elements for for uh, like we worked on Star Trek, the original Star Trek. Yeah. And uh, in fact, my first rotoscope job was to rotoscope the flyby. And there was one effect shot for the first show. Really? It was the Enterprise flying by camera. Mm-hmm. And it didn't have any graphics that were that were recognizable. So basically, if it was flying left to right, it could also be flopped and flown fly right to left. So so basically, it became two shots. So they had two different shots, but it was the same shot. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I had to rotor the thing because it was shot. Lynn Dunn was shot at Lynn Dunn's shop. And he had a blue screen that was like about 25 feet wide. But the thing is that it came right by camera. Of course, it went off the screen. They didn't have a screen big enough to cover the whole room. So I had to rotoscope the mat, you know, to hold it and get started. Oh, I see. Okay. And get rid of the pylon that was holding it up. So I had to, I had to cut the pylon out and then also rotor the entire ship for 40, 50 frames or something. Yeah. That was my first rotoscope job. Okay. <clears throat> but anyhow, um, we did a lot of, we did, I, I played Thing. That's right. You were you know, the hand. Yeah. That was my hand in the main title. In fact, they didn't want to shoot Thing on the set because it took time to set up and just shoot a hand kind of Right. So basically, they would not shoot that, and, and and the editor would then come over with the scene that it was going to cut with, and I'd have to mock up the, the table, and he'd probably have a tablecloth with it. It was a little amount of props, and then I'd mock that up, and then light it to match, and, and 
shoot shoot the hand. <laughs> man, oh man. Very cool. Cool. I'll I'll let you go, Richard. I don't wanna, you know, hang on to you too long. I appreciate you coming on and sharing all this stuff. But I didn't even get started. <laughs> There's anyway, so much, yeah. man. It's digging into this. You gotta write a book or something. I'm working on my memoirs. Good. Okay. I'm yeah. interested about that. I want to read that. Cool. Well, yeah, thanks yeah, again, please. Richard. Really appreciate it. Started anyway. All right. Well, you're, pl- you're welcome. Yeah. yeah. And what's your, Travis, what's your title? The show is called. Oh, it's called Curiosityness. Curiosityness. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of. It's just. I fit there. Yeah. I fit that description. Well, that's the whole thing about visual effects is, is you know, it, it's like you somebody comes up with this idea to, to create something that hasn't been seen before, and you have to figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. And so, it's, so it's, it's, all, it's a constant challenge, and, and all of the experiences and ideas or whatever that you dreams that you've had, all that kind of, it all comes into play and somehow you figure out how to do it. Right. Well, and you've dabbled in all this different stuff. So you kind of know at least what's possible out there to make it, to dive into it deeper or whatever, you know? Right. Yeah. And then when you get halfway done doing it, you think, oh, you know what? I could have done it this way. Yeah. So, but it's too late. You have to, you have to finish doing it that way. Right. So, so you're always learning. And, and so you're always going to be a step ahead of yourself this time. Yeah. Man, it sounds fun. I would love to get into something like that. It's, it sounds great. So thanks for coming on and sharing this stuff. Okay. All right. Take it okay. easy. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. Episode 83 has come and gone. Thank you to Richard Edlin for being on the show and sharing all that. Uh, can't wait to read your book, man. It's going to be awesome. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the end and being here. Uh, again, this is Curiosityness. I am Travis DeRose. Man, you can send me an email if you want to, if you want to give me your thoughts and feedback and suggestions for new podcast episodes or guests. Uh, send that to Travis at Curiosityness.com or on Instagram at Curiosityness Podcast. I'm on there at Trav DeRose on Instagram. We're on all the social media, all that stuff. There's not much more to say. Thanks for being here. See you in the next episode.